Hi, and welcome back to Inside Track. In this episode, I chat with Spot Money CEO Andre Hugo to learn how he's disrupting the financial services industry in South Africa. And I'll also be digging into his insights on not only how fintechs and startups can disrupt industries, but actually how corporate leaders can accelerate their own internal innovation cadence. Enjoy. Now, I will get into asking you about how you've got into this position and giving people more of a flavor about who Andre Hugo is, because I really want to understand more about you, how you got this entrepreneurial spirit, how you take decisions, why you decided going down this particular route as opposed to a corporate. But before we do that, let's just start uh, with Spot Money. What is Spot Money? Well, simply put, Spot Money is um, your only money app that we believe you'll ever need. It came out of a, um, a lot of market research and testing that we've done over the last couple of years. And we saw a combination or a, a movement of three main trends, and we thought we'd, we'd combine them into one money app. And the three trends were uh, ubiquitous payments. So being able to pay using a physical card, QR code, e-commerce transaction, or tapping your phone anywhere. Um, digital banking. Um, we saw that trend forming internationally with obviously the likes of Monzo, Revolut, Starling, N26, et cetera, coming to South Africa. And then we also had a look at it and said, well, if we went down that route, we'd be very similar to the existing banks and structures in South Africa. In order to try and get some white space, we looked at what people were doing online and the advent of online shopping and the future of online. And we really then believe that there's a unique opportunity with Spot around its marketplace. And if you take those three elements, your everyday payments, your digital banking payments, and your online shopping and consolidate that into one app, that's what Spot is. You didn't just wake up one morning and just go, I'm just going to go and do some market research and come up with these three things. I've got the feeling there's a bit of history um, which has led you towards this point in time that came before Spot. Yeah, there's, so there's, a, there's a number of things. So... When I was in consulting, we, we, we built a number of wallets for various suppliers in the markets or companies in the market. Then as an evolution of that, um, we launched, in my own capacity, I, I launched a business called Money for Jam, which allowed people to do micro-jobbing and then earn money into a wallet. And then through my own experience and evolution with Virgin Money, we looked at it from a banking perspective and realized there's a gap in the South African market around your everyday banking needs. And as a result of that, we tested for a good three years um, under the Virgin brand called Virgin Money Spot. And that was really small MVPs that we tested around payments for everyday shopping, peer-to-peer -peer payments, loan origination, value-added services. And we found niche communities within that that started to really use the product under that uh, brand. And we saw some gaps within that structure. And then as a result of that, we crystallized the strategy we went and we actually developed the uh, product roadmap, the investment pack, and then took it to market as a result off the back of that. Yeah, and, that, and that's interesting to me. So a lot of the um, sort of basis of where you started came from your time with Virgin Money. Um, and I can see behind you, we've got this lovely brand, this lovely icon um, called Spot. Why didn't you run with you know, Virgin Money? What led to the kind of move towards this differentiation with Spot Money? So we, we looked at it from a, a market perspective and about three years or two and a bit years ago now, we went to funding uh, back to the Virgin Group in, in London. We'd gone through a process with them from a strategy perspective around the insurance business and elected to um, decommission that business and move and transition it to AIG, who are our business partner at that point in time. 
Um, we had a credit card business that was running, which we transitioned to ABSA, and we were looking to then accelerate the spot business. When we went and did a, a capital raise in the market, there was feedback from the market around um, the Virgin brand in South Africa, the future of um, it in a money side. But then also when, in discussions with the Virgin Group, we looked at it and decided that we actually needed a standalone brand. It wasn't in line with the strategy from a Virgin Group perspective that we wanted to create this open banking marketplace. And they gave me the blessing to do a, a management buyout. So a, as a result of that, went to market and was fortunate enough to get six term sheets on the table at the end of the day. We then negotiated with the preferred supplier or preferred partner. And as a result of that, um, we're extremely lucky that we actually closed the final term sheet the day we were announced that we were going into lockdown. So it was quite an interesting journey in the last two years of capital raising, discussions with Virgin Group, transitioning businesses, and then building for the future, which is really what we've done with the spot brand. Yeah, and I'll cut, now you've mentioned lockdown. I want to come back to that and ask how, how you've been able to handle that so well, it seems, at least from a kind of retail customer's perspective. But just let you go back to the ubiquitous payments, digital banking, online shopping um, as themes. What was the actual kind of market need that you felt that you were trying to you know, solve? Entrepreneurs always talk about this idea of market fit. What was your hope that Spot would fill in terms of the gap? So I think if you look at those first two pillars, payments, everybody does payments on a regular basis. There's not, there's not much in the way of differentiation in that space at the moment. There's some, some interesting things coming. Um, from a digital banking perspective, I think the South African markets with the incumbent banks have their challenges. Some of them are putting some good digital propositions first, but by and large, those digital propositions are being put on top of aged infrastructure. And what we really looked at and we said, well, all of those incumbents are typically going to be structured around producing product for themselves and manufacturing that product. So for example, if you went to one of the main banks today and you joined in your early 20s, you'd get a savings or check account, then they'd sell you a credit card. Off the back of that, they'd sell you a car loan, potentially an unsecured loan, and ho hopefully they'd sell you investment products and lock you in. And they're really locking you into their product set. And off the back of that, they're charging you a monthly fee for actually managing your data and interacting within the silos of the actual banking infrastructure. We firmly believe that customers should have choice and that choice should be dictated by your life stage, where you're going and your spend patterns and what your aspirational goals are. So for example, uh, the reason why we built the marketplace is, you know, your, your needs are different to mine. You'll go into that marketplace, you might see a loan from, a from two providers. I might see loans from three providers, but they might not be the same. It's all relative to my spend patterns, my behavior. We also believe that if you go in there and you might have insurance on a car from X, that you might actually get a better deal from Y. Therefore, why can't we facilitate that switch for you in the marketplace and then moving in to your everyday shopping where we're facilitating buy now, pay later, over a thousand merchants, for example. We're giving you the comfort of being able to transact within a, I don't know, not a walled garden, but a garden of money. And as a result of that, we know that it's secure, safe, but it's giving you choice as a consumer to hopefully at the end of the day, free up disposable income so that all important paycheck actually lasts beyond the 20th of every month. And that's our, our mission. So you've got this idea, 
to create this consumer marketplace to go and give people choice. And it sounds entirely reasonable. It's kind of, you know, platform 101. I'm creating a platform for customers and, and for suppliers actually to come in and to transact for people to get the best rates for the circumstances that they operate in. Um, and if you want to think about other platform providers, they are typically incredibly successful. You could put Amazon in as a platform provider or Amazon Web Services as a platform provider in terms of their solutions. Uh, what, what I don't understand, I don't know what your view is, with all of the capital, all of the resources that the incumbent banks have actually got, why do you think they haven't been doing this? Because in all frankness, I mean, we didn't ask what the fundraise that uh, you ran was, but for them, I suspect it would have been peanuts. They've got billions and they could have quite easily gone and set here, 10 guys, go and sit in Cape Town, Skunk Works, Dark Ops. Here's the mission statement. Go and set up this awesome marketplace that customers love and uh, come back to us in three to six months. But they don't. Having worked in corporate, having worked with a number of the large banks uh, and insurance providers historically, I think the, the biggest challenge that incumbent organizations face, they've got the will to do it. They've got the resources definitely to do it. But the antibodies within the organizations kind of close it down and result in, in the products not being built effectively because A, they, they stuck within the paradigm of their old business models. The, first hur the next hurdle that they face if they get past that is then trying to deal with the risk and compliance part of the organization that actually goes, generally meets you at the table and says to you, you can't do this because of X. Instead of actually going with a mindset of you can do this within the following framework. And that subtle shift actually, in my opinion, results in organizations that are successful in doing internal innovation versus those that aren't. And then the last element is really around the investment in, in infrastructure. So if you take Time Bank out the picture and you take Bank Zero and us out the picture, the youngest bank in South Africa is most probably Capitec from an infrastructure perspective. And that's 20 years old. Another bank that we were, we were dealing with um, about three years ago, we asked them for an API and we were told that um, they can't give it to us because everything is written in COBOL. So I guess the inherent plumbing of those organizations is so invested in their billion dollar SAP implementations, et cetera, that they aren't agile enough to do it. And I think the combination of those three elements is the will, the governance, and the infrastructure prohibits them from building it. And then also, you know, people's careers have been made on it. You know, the, the CIO has backed this infrastructure for 20 years. Now suddenly so to go cloud-based, flick it over overnight is a cost implication, is depreciation, is a ROI versus we're fortunate. We've actually built for app. We, we started digital first and digital only. We built in cloud. We built knowing poppies coming. We were fortunate in that aspect where, where I think some of our incumbents are challenged around that. You've made some quite interesting decisions already. I mean, if I think back from the timings that you gave, you know, roughly two years ago, really, Spot started to form. When, when did you go live? Officially on the 27th of January of this year. Okay. So you've gone live. It's all very new. We'll ask you in the way that I'm allowed to ask you about how things are running. But you took a very interesting decision and you've only released an app. Can you, can you talk me through how you come to that conclusion? So... I was very fortunate. I worked with eBay prior to joining Virgin, and they had actually gone with a digital strategy. When we Originally, their strategy was mobile only, and then they flipped back to digital because they saw that there was a lot of traction still on the web. When I looked at it, 
the market of the future is our millennials generation Z. They're entering the workforce or in the workforce at the moment, and they'll be fully banked in about five, 10 years time. They all have smartphones. They're on their smartphones constantly. The, the web is not necessary. A tool that they would go to for banking was our research that we did. Therefore, we thought we could deliver far more intuitive, enhanced customer experience through mobile only. And as a result of that, that, that drove our strategy. Um, we definitely made a call that we weren't going to be going branches. I mean, one of the, the things I smile about is that about three years ago, uh, Lego decommissioned their Lego branch. So, I mean, if they're already starting to decommission branches, surely the rest of the, the branching infrastructure should also be following suit. So we're never going to be in a branch infrastructure phase. And as a result of that, that really shaped thinking of where we wanted to do. We wanted a bank in your pocket. We wanted a money app in your pocket to transact when you needed it, to give you that comfort that you knew what you could spend, how you could spend it, and in your choice of spending channel. All right. So you're never going to do branches. I think that's come through loud and clear. Do you think you'll ever offer banking services on something as boring and old fashioned as a website? There might be aspects that we need to deploy on a website. So I'll, I'll never say never. So there might be the ability for um, secure balance inquiry or certain features that you want to look up on, on a website. But inherently, no, we must probably go progressive web app instead. Where we may go in terms of a physical presence is looking at some infield kiosks to assist with mass market adoption and scale. It's obviously quite a complex product uh, when you on, are onboarding going through from a person who's never really had to scan their ID, book, do a selfie, link a card, order a card. It's, it's daunting for certain individuals. As a result of that, there is some stuff that we can do infield that would assist on that. And we, we potentially would go down that route in the future. But our predominant focus is digital, mobile, and mobile first. Other entrepreneurs also, and I, and I think this is you know, kind of what you're explaining, but they're, they're very clear about how important it is to have your target audience, your target client base. Now, the way that you've described it, I'm immediately thinking of millions of people who just can't use Spot. There's uh, the people that have just got all fingers and thumbs in terms of using apps and uh, their eyesight isn't quite where it was, so they're not able to do it. They don't feel comfortable. They weren't born digitally native. Um, and there's a whole other set of people that just don't have access yet because of the blockers that are preventing them from getting into this mobile uh, network, either because data costs are too high or because uh, they can't get access to the hardware or they just don't trust banking. You're obviously taking this decision fully aware that this is going to exclude a large part of the audience. How did you get comfortable with that? So I think in, in order to get product market fit for a product that you launch that is going to change certain behavior in, in the industry and, and it is a disruptive business model, requires you to hone in on a, a market segment and deliver according to that market segment. That doesn't mean that we're going to exclude other market segments. I mean, interesting enough, we've got 10% of our base is private banks that are using the platform. Now, you'd intuitively you'd think, I'm a private banked individual. I've got a banker at the end of my, my phone if I want to phone them. Why would I download Spot, which is a debit card by all intents and purposes? Why would they do it? And it's from intuitive ease of use and ability to transact and do a peer-to-peer -peer at no cost and to make money social is why we've actually seen them onboarding. On the other end of the spectrum, people that may not have the data may not be, as you said, all thumbs, et cetera, that come into to the platform. We're seeing a large number of those individuals coming on because we're a free bank account. 
by, at the end of the day. And we're opening it up to financial inclusion. Our challenge then from a business perspective is to make sure that the value proposition resonates with that market and drives the stickiness so that they can transact on an, to suit their needs. So whilst we've got our key market, which is your new to work, your 18 to 35-year-olds, that fairly tech-savvy, has a smartphone, which is the large majority of South Africans, if you think of it, there are the fringes that we definitely are onboarding, and we are building specific product and value propositions around those to make it more intuitive for them. Presumably, you think that this is a market which is going to st uh, scale quite quickly. I mean, we've got the um, Gen Z, and is it now Gen Alpha is the, the next lot, I forget, uh, coming through at a ridiculous rate, and we're um, seeing them replace, unfortunately, the uh, baby boomers. We're seeing data costs come down quite significantly. Some are punting that over the next few years it's going to reach free. You've seen device costs, although there is a chip squeeze, but in general device costs coming down quite radically over the last couple of years. Do you think this is actually going to really place you in the place where it opens up to this new opportunity that's not quite there yet, but the next two or three years is going to be significant growth? I do believe so. And that's really why we're banking this for the long term. I mean, I think if you enter into the money app space, digital banking, um, payment side, it's, it's not a quick window It's on, in terms of a return. You're not going to make your return in six months. It's a long-term game. You've got to actually go and invest and drive through that J-curve. So we're, we're, we're investing for the future. We believe that the consumer choice and the, the millennials and Zs that are in the, the workforce, if you follow the trends internationally, it will definitely catch up in, in South Africa. They are multi-banked. And I mean, if you actually look at it from a South African perspective, they're already multi-backed. They've got multiple store credit cards that give them access to revolving credits in a different shape and form. It's just really consolidating that and making it easier to use. So yes, we, we're looking for the future. It's really a two, three to, to 10 year window that we're really investing in to make sure that we get the business to scale and profitability, obviously a lot quicker than 10 years. Now, another interesting um, decision that you took is around the licensing of, of spots. Can you talk about the, because uh, you could have gone and got your own uh, license, but you chose not to. Yeah, so I think the, the challenge with going for your own license is it's very costly, time consuming. And we'd, if you wanted to get to market to test your product, to refine your product, and then to scale your product, it is prohibitive. In addition to that approach, you need a, a whole different group of people and staff overhead in an organization that manage the risk associated with the reporting requirements and liaison with the uh, South African Reserve Bank and the various parties within that structure. So as a result of that, we looked at the various models, and the model is the Alliance Banking one that we elected to pursue that allows us effectively to sit underneath Bidvest Bank's license and to rent that license from them in, in, for a specific set of functions that we can do on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's in terms of the partnership for the license, so the license capital of Bidvest. The, the other question I've got that's related to that is how you choose which systems and infrastructure to build and which ones to buy and, and which ones to, to actually rent. And I don't know how much detail you want to go into that, I'm imagining there's a lot of stuff that's rented or white labeled that you're using because it's just good. And, and you're trying to be very specific on the stuff that you build that is unique to spot. Yeah, so the next main platform decision that we made, in, in a, um, for want of a better word, was um, to use MasterCard. 
Um, and we, we needed an issuing license from them, which we negotiated and are able to obviously issue our own plastic, being our spot card and our virtual cards. We elected that route because we looked at them versus Visa and it gave us two options. One is an API layer that we could do certain transactions that wouldn't result in card transactions, but we also had then the benefit of being able to do card transactions. And then when we looked at it, we said, okay, we can look at it from a bottom-up systems perspective, and this is what we believe the customer needs to do, or we can actually take a different approach. And we took it from a jobs-to-be-done framework and said, what is the end state that the consumer is trying to achieve from a money perspective um, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, monthly basis, and an annual basis? And how can we actually help them move within those, those end states to increase their their net worth, to reduce stress around transactions. And as a result of that, we looked at best in breed products that we could put into our stack that we could consolidate in the wrapper of spot and deliver to market. And the IP that we really have underneath this is how we consolidate, protect that data and surface products relevant to customers at the right time um, using best of breed product in the market and renting that. Um, and that's really the approach that we've gone with. So it was never, never really in the um, uh, going to be a sensible decision to go and look at purchasing systems, you know, bank in a box systems that you get from a number of providers, um, Temenos, for example, or others that play out there. Always this, you know, focus on the front end layer and then APIs to go and, and call and send and manage information with best in breed um, third parties or other products and service providers. No, we, we looked at products like Temenos and some of the other solution providers in the, in, in the spectrum or in, in the market. And our strategy is definitely an API layer. Put that API layer in, plug into the best of breed and expose that based on a consumer need. So, I mean, if we want to do crypto, we could actually expose that through our API layer, partner with X to provide buy and sell of crypto, as an example. Um, same process that we've got in our marketplace with Payflex. We didn't go down the path of building our own buy now pay later. They've already gone through the hard yards of onboarding a thousand plus merchants in the right categories. Our value proposition is exposing that those merchants in a simple, easy to use manner within spot so that the person can transact all in one place um, as if they were in Payflex, but it's actually from the spot app. Good question here from uh, Moepi. I was, I was actually having a debate uh, with a bunch of guys on LinkedIn, you know, the other day we were asking the question about whether banks or whether there's a future for banks. And probably the most consistent response that you get back is because they are regulated. They are effectively quasi sovereign state owned entities because they're systemically important um, in the ecosystem, which boiling it down means they provide huge amounts of liquidity because they're effectively able to produce money. Right. I'm going to go and lend you some money. We put it on your uh, account. I'm recognizing a liability, but I've suddenly effectively created, um, you know, money. Um, and therefore, they're always going to have the support of government and regulators for controlling leverage and lending and the money supply that's, uh, that's out there in the markets. When it comes to spot, who regulates spot to either a give people like me and other people uh, protection, you know, deposit insurance type protection, and then who regulates it in terms of just your place in the systemic banking arena that we live in? So we operate under a number of regulations. So we, we operate obviously under Bitvest banking uh, license. So as a result of that, we are um, obligated to and responsible under the, the Banking Act. And, there's, and we've got to actually meet certain criteria, generate certain reports. 
from a um, AML, know your customer perspective, risk rating. We, we have structures that we have to uh, comply with within the FinServe and FIC reporting domain around that. Um, there's obviously payment processing rules um, and regulations for MasterCard that we operate under. And then there's obviously the TCF, uh, Treat Customers Fairly, Poppy or Papaya and um, CPA Acts that we also have to operate under. So there's various acts that we sit within. We, we fully regulated under that aspect with the, with the best interest in the consumer um, at heart. We found the regulators to be uh, supportive. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, it's really difficult to break into financial services, particularly with banking, um, you know, products, uh, because it's going to be difficult to get support from the Saab or from the other regulators. What is it now? The FSB is now the FCSB. I forget what they're called now. One of those the new financial services board. Is it now financial contact and services board? I forget. Yeah, so we they've been supportive to date. There's obviously um, we don't have because we don't hold a banking license. We can't deal directly with Saab. We deal through Bidvest. And right. their various liaisons or heads within those those structures. To date, um, they've definitely been supportive. I think if um, a testament to the fact that during lockdown, we were the only Alliance Bank structure that was approved. I know that um, subsequently there's been two more that have been approved, that um, one's a mutual bank and then one's also another Alliance Bank that will be going to market shortly. So there's been various things that have gone through the process, but we were definitely supported during lockdown and Whilst there were delays that obviously were a result of COVID with staffing and access to staff, we were able to get um, our clean bill of health from Saab to launch. And they actually gave us the beta um, sign-off in the beginning of December, where we did we were capped at 500 users for a period of two months um, to make sure that the, the service was stable, it was operating as planned. And then only once we'd submitted those results, we were able to launch in January. Now, where I'm going here is to try to get a feel about this concept of open banking. And, and to have open banking, you need to have supportive you know, regulators. Are you starting to see, do you think there's been a shift over the last decade where they're becoming more supportive to try to get more competition in the market um, and to try to drive initiatives like you're seeing you know, over in Europe, for example, with their open banking, open API uh, frameworks? I definitely see it coming to South Africa. So I think, you know, one of the first movers in South African market was Nedbank, um, where they offer uh, open banking um, APIs to a large number of the, the fintechs. And there's a number of fintechs that are actually building on top of their stack, which is a positive trend. More recently, Standard Bank has opened up and said that they, they're also looking to go down that path as a platform, as a service. So I think... Whilst the regulators are um, putting structures and regulation in place to accommodate it, it's really going to be driven from the, the large incumbents to actually say, this is what we are able to offer, and this is how quickly we can offer that, that product. And that's always going to be a challenge, is you know, building an internal API is easy, but building a secure public-facing API that can be used by multiple parties is always going to be a challenge, and there's security risks associated with it. And I think that's the biggest delay um, in some of the banks moving forward with that as a strategy in South Africa. One of the big things you touched on it earlier is this uh, progress towards rapid payments. Can you chat a little bit about that and what you think the implications are? It's going to be awesome for a consumer's perspective. I think from a pricing perspective. For the audience, maybe just uh, explain uh, your interpretation of what rapid payments is. So there's, there's multiple initiatives running around the rapid payments, but it's effectively opening up EFT or counter account settlement or um, various payment channels 
that can be enabled quickly by a consumer between various parties and reducing the cost and the friction associated with that. Now, there's various parties that are already doing that in the South African market. There's some startups and established players that are facilitating that, but it's largely unregulated at the moment. By moving it into a regulated space, I think it'll benefit the consumer and the parties involved. So, you know, the, it's a more secure, safe, and faster way to transact, if that's the summary that I've got. As to the way but, we're also, but also creating, I guess, a framework which eventually is going to allow other players to come in and operate within that framework to offer their own payment services, i.e. bring in more competition. So hopefully the likes of you and I just in our sort of consumer hat um, space can transact with each other easily for free to authenticate each other, to send money you know, via uh, mobile to open up it. So it becomes a lot more of a seamless experience as opposed to always having to go and transact through Visa Cast, you know, Visa or MasterCard or the banking infrastructure, which seems incredibly burdensome and slow. Well, I guess my frame of reference is slightly different on that. So from the Virgin Money spot, we were already enabling people to transact off the back of a mobile number. Yeah, Peer-to-peer payment to me, has been around for a number of years with my frame of reference, and it's always been free because effectively it's just a journal entry. If you're moving funds from one account to another um, within, a, within the, a closed loop or a pool account, it's actually just a journal entry. It shouldn't be incurring 11 Rand fee to move that. And that's why we've set it as a, a free charge to actually say, here you go, Colin, you're on spot, I'm on spot, let me pay you. All I need is your cell phone number. I don't need your bank details, which you, you may not want to give me for a one-off transaction. I send it to you. It's quick. It settles instantly, and it's available for you to use. That's the benefit of what's going, going to be coming. But from a spot perspective, we're already there. You, you can do that today. Yeah. Competition um, is a coming. Where do I want to go here? Um, I'm just trying to, to get your, your sort of read on this one. In last month's call... And a regular question is, actually, you just had it up on a poll, uh, to be honest. It was saying, who are the biggest threats to the incumbent banks? I think it was fintechs. Is it crypto? Is it the tech firms uh, that are outright? Or who do you think these guys should be most worried about? I guess I'm really saying as well, do you expect more people coming in and doing what you're doing in sort of different uh, ways and measures? Because we've got you. We've got uh, Bank Zero. You know, you've mentioned sort of Time Bank, whereas originally there was just Capitec. What are, what are you expecting over the next three or four years in terms of this space? I think there's going to be multiple entrants coming into the market. I mean, we, we've seen Vodapay launch recently. There's, uh, there's the telcos, uh, obviously, yeah. Yeah, there's better app or better finance coming. There's, there's, there's multiple players that are going to be entering into the market. I think it's great from a consumer perspective. It'll give consumers choice. If I look at it, I think there's a couple of themes that are actually driving it. One is obviously open banking, which is what we, we're looking at and we're driving from an agenda perspective. There's um, the telcos and their entry into the space, but their entry into the space, is it not another re-entry into the space? So all the telcos bar one have actually had banking or money apps historically for the last 10 years. You know, no offense to, to the telcos, but... My current incumbent telco provider can't produce an invoice that's accurate every month for me. Why am I going to give them my my daily transacting account? That's kind of my mistrust with the telcos. So I think the flip side, people are hedging their bets on crypto. I've got a different view on crypto. I think crypto is um, misused. It's an asset class at the moment, and people are buying and selling and making the arbitrage on it. It's not actually been built and used the way it should be for, for micropayments. 
I think the underlying technology there from a blockchain perspective is actually more important and more relevant. So historically in, in the Virgin stable, we actually built Virgin Money Spot on blockchain. We were fortunate enough to be awarded um, from Dan Tapscott's organization. We came third in a, out of, I think, 1,500 companies globally for the use of micropayments. But the challenge with it is in the South African context, there's new regulation coming around um, from FinServe and how to use blockchain. We were compliant with that. The banks didn't like what we were doing. They complained that we were a deposit-taking institution, even though legally we weren't and we defended ourselves successfully. But with that changing and evolving space, if you're going to take a proposition to the mass market and educate them on blockchain, educate them on crypto, et cetera, it's actually going to be a bridge too far, in my opinion, right now. You've actually got to focus on what the use case is, and the use case is payments, digital banking, and spend in the marketplace. Therefore, to decouple that and focus on the consumer's needs versus talking the hype is really what, what people need to focus on going forward. So I think all of those players have a role to play in the future. I think it's going to be great from a consumer perspective because there's no longer five parties to choose from. There might be 20. And at the end of that, not all 20 will survive. But that's also good because it'll create new opportunities for new people that will learn off the back of that. So I think consumer will win at the end of the day. Um, so you must get this question all the time. M-Pesa in Kenya, uh, WeChat Pay in China. Great examples of making the cost of transferring money for payments or uh, between wallets uh, incredibly cheap prices. Um, and particularly in China, you know, you've now got a billion and a half or more people using the likes of the Ant Financial WeChats of the world to go and transact with QR codes with, you know, 0.001 yen uh, types of rates on the back end. Why haven't we seen this kickstart in South Africa in a similar way? And do you think this is going to change over the next uh, couple of years? I think over-the-top players will definitely have a role to play going forward. I think the Kenyan example with Impesa, the dominance of their market position, the timing was perfect. Um, and as a result of that, they fulfilled a, a need for the end consumer and were able to scale very quickly. In China, from a WeChat perspective, the strategy was slightly different you know, there's more control um, as, as to who can do what on the internet. And, and basically, WeChat or uh, QQ is the internet. So by having the scale of being on that platform, introducing a payments QR code um, solution was logical and would scale. And there's parties that are in South Africa that are trying to do that. I mean, if you look at uh, Banu with Moya, you know, data free. Those are solutions that are also entering the space with wallets and structures to make to facilitate free free payments. I think the benefit of all of those is that they've actually taken the cost that typical has been onset or pushed onto a consumer, which is really margin within a large number of those businesses based on their infrastructure costs that they've inherited or had historically. They've rebuilt themselves differently and said there shouldn't be a cost of these transactions, and they've built for the consumer, and that's really what's differentiated them in the market. You know, why it didn't work in South Africa, I think it's fragmented. It wasn't the right time. It was adapting a model from a foreign country, trying to deploy it locally with the same flavor. It needs to be adapted for South African market. Let's go back um, in time now. I said at the start of the call, we wanted to learn a bit about your history as well. And I suppose from what at least I can see on LinkedIn, your history started at uh, Deloitte. Yeah, originally um, I'm a failed auditor. I did my articles 
um, realized I was never going to be an, uh, an auditor for the rest of my life or an accountant and um, got moved into a project that was the second SAP project in South Africa. Um, and I was seconded to them for two years that I learned how to install Unix, uh, Oracle, uh, implement uh, finance modules, sales modules, plant maintenance, etc. Then got into the control space. And then over a journey of 18 years, um, progressed through the ranks uh, locally and internationally until I built out an outsourcing business in Australia for them and then came back to do the same thing in South Africa. Um, but within that journey, I was fortunate that I realized that there were some gaps in my, my business model. The CEO at that point in time gave me the latitude to experiment. So I, I built two businesses within that structure, and that really got me on the path of in serial entrepreneurship, as you call it. How important was that air cover from, you know, that CEO? I don't know if you want to mention who it was, but how important was that to actually get you started in your career in terms of really taking it forward? I think it was critical. So the, the individual that you're talking about is Louis Hearing. He was the CEO of um, Deloitte Consulting at that point in time. And I remember a conversation. We successfully been running the outsourcing division uh, in South Africa uh, for about 18 months at that stage. I built a graduate academy, um, which took university graduates and gave them business skills because, I mean, you can be textbook smart, but actually presenting in a, to a C-level individual in an organization or managing your timesheet, your balance sheets, um, your savings, actually having some skills within the consulting environment was lacking. So we built a program to run that. And then I also built another program around flexible resource management because in the early 2000s, I saw large number of highly specialized SAP skills being pulled into the market on contract, creating a hole in my outsourcing business, but I only needed them part-time. So I created a resourcing model where I could still have access to those resources. I could contract, contract them out to other organizations, so like a contracting business, but it really worked well for both parties. And I remember having lunch with Louis the one day, and he said, Andre, you, you like starting things. You like building up businesses. We've got an external innovation function from a Deloitte perspective. Would you be interested in building an internal uh, innovation function? Rules are fairly simple. You've got to make a certain profit every year. You can't do bricks and mortar. You can't compete with uh, an audit client's business. Can you do it? And I said, yeah. And we, he ran cover because effectively, what, if you're running an internal organizer innovation function, you potentially run the risk of cannibalizing parts of the business that exist today that aren't moving quick enough. And he ran or had a number of uncomfortable conversations with the heads of those divisions, those partners in charge, and gave me the latitude to create the businesses that I've eventually built for Deloitte over that period. I think that's a really important lesson, isn't it, for anyone from a corporate environment that's listening into this. If you want to go and run something which is a bit experimental, um, or slightly away from what the mothership is interested in, you've got to find those sponsors that give you the air cover, otherwise those antibodies are just going to kill you. Correct. And I think that was, was probably the, the, the biggest lesson that we, or the two lessons that I had out of that journey. One was um, having that, I don't know, what, what do you want to call it in the American football, your, your line block backer or, or your front line that clears out the, the people and lets you run as a quarterback. I think that was really critical um, to me. And the second was, about a year into that program, we actually sat down with the risk and legal team and we'd put through like six or seven business cases and we'd been blocked. 
And we actually sat down and worked out that their KPIs were actually to block innovation. It wasn't to enhance innovation. So we actually changed some of their KPIs to say, well, how many of these ideas can you get through within the risk compliance framework? And that subtle shift with those two elements resulted in a good 10-year journey of building businesses for Deloitte. When was it that you decided that you can't do the corporate anymore? Um, you actually have to go out and go on your own. Yeah, I think you, you, you eventually reach a ceiling in any corporate where you're not growing as quickly as you want to grow. The fact that I was continually building or starting businesses, building and then handing them over, I decided I really wanted to give it a go on my own, own bat. And as a result, I actually I took an opportunity where I left to um, a corporate organization that was really on an innovative path. But when I got there, the grass was 10 times green on the other side of the fence and they promised. I lasted five months there and I, I moved on. And off the back of that, that's when I said, I'm going to back myself. And that's really the, in my own capacity with my cousin, we then launched Money for Jam. Off the back of exiting that business um, 18 months later, I did a build um, directly for eBay um, for a product for them. I exited that, that all, um, within 11 months of actually starting that journey. Um, and then was approached by Virgin Money at a, or Virgin Group in London to advise them on from a board perspective here. Did that, and then the journey has been a result of where we are today, doing the management buyout and, and getting the backing to build Spot Money going forward. All right, so we're back up to date now with uh, Spot Money, but it was interesting for me to get um, the history there because I wanted to now ask how you actually take decisions at Spot Money because it's kind of linked back to where we started. You've got all of the constraints. You don't have the capital and the resources of the banks. You've got the biggest ideas, perhaps, and the biggest vision compared to a lot of the banks, but without those resources. So you're continually constrained. How do you approach taking you know, decisions on a day-to-day -day basis that seemingly are, um, are the right decisions in all honesty? So we've got a, got a long-term strategy that we, we put down on paper and committed to. Um, and that was obviously what the investment case was predicated on. We run a quarterly KPI, uh, KPI process where we look at um, the objectives for the next quarter, the performance of the last quarter against our previous KPIs, and then we're data-driven. So we look at the data from a consumer perspective, the behavior, the market changes, and the, the trends that we're seeing in the market, the new entrants, what they're doing, and the potential entrants that we see going down the track. And we lock in our next quarter's KPIs, and we hold our, ourselves accountable to it. And you know the, the biggest opportunity with a startup or um, a tech business is you're like a kid in a candy shop. You can build anything. That's kind of you, you, you believe you're bulletproof and you can do that. The idea is actually focusing on the ones that are really going to make a difference um, in your consumers' lives and putting yourselves in your consumers' shoes. And that's really what we focus on. So we, we lock down um, 10 KPIs across uh, product, uh, marketing, support in the business. And those KPIs are what we stick to every quarter um, to deliver on. And we've got to show progress against them. And that's really our decision-making process. It's, it's rapid. It's quick. We work in two-week sprint cycles across the complete business from a marketing, from a product, from a support perspective. And we hold the, the team leads and the team accountable for it. So, how, so just to be clear, how often are you uh, releasing features and, and new products every two weeks through those sprint cycles? So we, we can. But uh, what we look at doing is we actually, we've, we've bundled them into a release train at the moment. 
Um, so typically you'll see a new feature coming out every four to six weeks maximum. Right. And then when you're releasing those features, how, um, how good are they? A lot of people take a long time to release features and product because they're worried it's going to fail and fall over. Where do you stand on this? Are you just happier to just get it out there and observe? You said you're data-led, even if it's not the best that it could be because you'll iterate it later, or uh, are you more of a kind of, I don't wanna, do I wanna say that? I don't know, maybe I live there for a time. I think I can get away with it. More of a sort of German engineering mentality. It's gonna be perfect uh, before you actually release it. No, look, we're, we're a startup. We're by far never gonna be perfect when we, when, when we launch a product. We strive to be, but let's be realistic. We're actually building an airplane while we're flying it at the moment. We've got clients, we've got customers, we've got uh, product market fit in certain segments, and we're testing and we're launching new, new features as we go. And our approach is iterative. We will launch a feature, take that feedback from a beta perspective, we will iterate, we'll improve, we'll pivot it, we'll change it, we'll go forward along that journey based on direct consumer feedback, as well as just changes in the market. I mean, I think, you know, I hate, war analogies, but um, what was it, Napoleon, that said, you, you know, your battle plan is lost on first contact. That's typically what happens. You, you, you build a product, you think it's going to behave, you've done all the research and feedback from user groups to focus groups to uh, surveys, and when you actually launch the product, it's not used the way you plan it to be used, but people use it and adapt it in a different way. Take those lessons, enhance it, and iterate. That's kind of our approach. How important is purpose in setting your strategy? versus the uh, desire to make profit? I think profit is obviously critical going forward, but a purpose-led organization is something that I really hang my hat on. It was one of the things that I think inherently it was never articulated as succinctly as it was and until I joined um, Virgin Group. And Virgin Group is really driven from a purpose perspective. Now, purpose is not something that we're going to go to market with to say this is our vision statement or this is our purpose, but it's something that we've set internally and we actually measure it, um, our purpose against a number of pillars. Those pillars being, does our purpose actually work for our staff? Will our purpose deliver that same purpose for our consumer, uh, society, our business partners, and we look at it holistically against that and we measure ourselves against that. So if you take that purpose, you take the data that we've got and you look at a jobs to be done framework, that's how we decide and drive the business going forward. And as a result of that, we believe it will drive a profitable organization um, in a far quicker time than if we weren't purpose-led. Do you find that setting a strong purpose makes it easier to hire talented resources that actually you know, have the work ethic to do the job that you need them to do? It is because I think the, the individuals that we've recruited in the, this last year have actually joined A, because they want to be part of a fast growing fintech, but they've actually evaluated it against the consumer position and what they believe it is doing in, in the market for the betterment of financial inclusion and making banking easier for consumers in their everyday lives. Now, Underpinning that is the purpose. And when they actually come in through the interview process, we expose them to what the purpose is, what we believe it will do for them, how it will manifest, and what their role is in, in going forward. Successful people that um, blossom within the organization buy into that purpose and drive the purpose from an ownership perspective. And that really is, I think, one of the defining factors that we've got that will drive the culture of this organization and the success going forward. 
And I, we, when we chatted as a, as a sort of pre-talk to this, I think you said you're now a team of about 25 or so people. Yeah, we're 25 um, FTEs in, in South Africa. We've got a number of contractors um, in, in dev companies spread between South Africa, Mauritius and India. Um, we've obviously got um, some teams in MasterCard that, that assist us, in Bidvest that assist us. And then we've got some external agencies that we use. So dedicated team in spot is 25 people. Our network effect of our business model that we've created is probably 60 in total. Can you imagine ever having a, because uh, you, you did this during COVID, so obviously people have been working from home and you've you've been doing this remotely. Can you imagine, imagine hopefully next year when things get back to normal, uh, bringing everyone to an office somewhere down in Cape Town and doing the commute and having them sitting next to each other like the old days? We're a hybrid at the moment. So we, um, we're back in the office two to three days a week, but it's really driven by the individuals. There's certain individuals that are, or what I've learned out of this last 18 months of COVID, there's, there's individuals that can work from home, A, from a work ethic, from a engagement perspective, and then also from a structure perspective. But there's, there's a number of individuals that unfortunately cannot. A, because they're having to work at a dining room table with their spouse that's also working across them and then managing their children's homework next to them. And their bandwidth isn't strong enough. So there's certain challenges. And what I've done is I said, you know, from, from a building of a, a new business, there's a cultural element that you can't create over Zoom calls, unfortunately. There's elements that you can, but there's ones that you can't. So therefore, let's get into the office Tuesdays and Wednesdays. As a result of that, we have most of our management meetings and all staff meetings on Tuesdays. We have breakout sessions in the afternoon. And then on Wednesdays, we have specific sessions, one-on-ones through to team meetings, and it helps people reconnect and create a rapport. But at the, on the back of that, then there's still all the meetings that we have with um, our various suppliers and our partners that are international, local, et cetera, that you're never going to be in an office and meet with them. So, for example, we meet with the Dubai team from MasterCard, the Joburg team from, from Bidvest. It's pointless telling everybody to be in the office to have those meetings. So, to me, I think what it's done, it's given people the flexibility. By and large, everybody is far more productive. And they're happier and they're also saving money in their own right because they're not commuting and they get therefore working slightly more. The downside, I would say, is that you, there's definitely, I've, I've seen a challenge with, across certain staff around mental health. You know, if you're a single individual working for four months and not going out of your apartment because you're too scared of COVID, there's challenges. So we've had to put other structures in place to assist people when we've, we've seen potentially that they're not delivering their best or being their best. And that's really what, what we're trying to juggle and focus on now. I'd love to, uh, to, to dig into the question on mental health. Then we'll maybe we'll do that on one of the future calls because I find that a, a fascinating area about the uh, different CEOs and how they're trying to approach it for their organizations. But I, I think if we open that question now with a few minutes to go, we'll run out of time. So I'm going to jump to one from uh, Dr. Kobus uh, Liebenberg because it touches on what you were just saying before the mental health issues about the fact that you've got this network um, that you're dealing with. The question is, is platform interoperability a challenge for growth and to what extent can the consolidation of different providers be on the cards? But let's just do the first part. Do you find it challenging in terms of interoperability and the API structures for the different service providers that you're using to create Spot? Yeah, definitely. I think the we, we're not a full open banking platform at the moment. We're having to uh, ingest specific APIs from organizations, and it does require dev work on each of those integrations. So I can't 
go to insurance provider X and just pull in their, their API versus insurance provider Y. There's actually working both. So it's definitely a, a challenge in the space going forward. I think there's, as a result of that challenge, there's an opportunity for somebody that wants to consolidate those all and present them as one API. Um, similar to what, I guess, Hippo has done from an insurance perspective, if you look at it. So yeah, it is a challenge at the in the current shape and form until there's standards, it's gonna always be a challenge. Someone comes along, one of the big organizations and says, we like what you're doing. We're putting money down on the table. We're going to buy you. What, what are you, what are you going to do? Especially against this backdrop of, you know, what you've said, your success is driven by purpose, small teams of people who are operating, um, fairly autonomously, clear vision in terms of direction, fail fast attitude. These aren't terms that normally go with big organizations. Yeah, look, um, I'm a shareholder in the business. There's other shareholders that would need to be consulted in that process. But right now, my personal view would be, no, the opportunity for this business is to scale to, we've still got to get through proper market fit by re remaining independent and driving the, the future that we're planning, I think will be far more successful than anybody buying us out now. I think there's been too many examples in the South African in industry where organizations have been bought too early. There was a great PFM product that unfortunately I think was, was bought too early in its last stage and as a result never really achieved the scale that it could have. So yeah, I think it would be a shareholder decision. I can't speak for all shareholders, but my view would be to, to drive the, the journey that we're on to get to scale um, and make the difference, to stick to the strategy that we are and the purpose. Right. Looking forward, uh, let's say five years. Um, what does the landscape look like in South Africa? And uh, we can pick anything, self-sovereign identity, crypto, rapid payments, government support, open APIs. So I, I would say, obviously, there's going to be rapid payments will, will be introduced. So I think what that's going to do is it's going to force a line item that is theoretically a profit item in a number of the large incumbents. And it's going to remove that because I think rapid payments will, will actually remove that and, and people should start transacting at zero cost. So that coupled with APIs, I think open APIs will give more choice. CDCs, blockchain, crypto. I think there's, there's too much focus on those at the moment. I don't think they're going to necessarily get to mass market scale. They're still going to be highly regulated. And it's really around our forex uh, regulations that is driving that, in my opinion. You know, and, until those are the forex rules are relaxed, it's not really going to open up um, to the mass market on, on the crypto um, and that side of the business. But yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting journey. I think there's going to be successes, there's going to be failures, there's going to be new entrants that we haven't even thought of. I mean, a couple of, you know, two, three years ago, had anybody heard of NFTs? And it is a trading class. So I think that's the benefit of, of where we're going, is there's going to be a lot more innovation. There's going to be a lot more different thinking. It's really around the business models that are going to be challenged in the future that I think the true innovation is going to sit. Tech is going to be the easier part.
So if you enjoyed this episode on open banking with Spot Money CEO Andre Hugo, then do check out my website, colinisles.com. There you'll find more interviews with business leaders from around the world, which I hope inspire you to do things differently within your own organisations. Big thanks, by the way, to Huawei for sponsoring this particular series. And until we meet again on the next event, do stay safe. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.